What is up, Asymmetry? How you all doing? I gotta be, I, I gotta be really honest. I'm like sitting here kind of awestruck. The wheels are turning. I'm thinking about, I mean, I think I just fell in love, honestly. I don't know what else to say. Chris Baker, uh, the curator of the Chicago Botanical Gardens Bonsai Collection, is an individual that I know very little about, or I would say knew less about after our recent conversation. He's been to Mirai, he's a good friend of Aaron Packard, who we obviously work very closely with at PBM, spent time at the National Arboretum under Jack Sustick, and just following on this concept of curatorship, which has sort of been this theme of the podcast lately as this curiosity that I have in these individuals that have come into these uh, roles, well-earned, well-deserved, and incredibly necessary. Talking with Chris today just blew my mind. And as we're trying to get the wagon out, I unfortunately had to cut the conversation short, but I think this is the first of many conversations that Chris and I will have as like-minded individuals who realize the capacity and the power of bonsai beyond the vanity of the art form for what it contribute to the greater good. Anyways, part one of Chris Baker, sit back, relax, buckle up for sure and enjoy. I've been really looking forward to talking to you because the Chicago Botanical Collection is a collection that, you know, I saw for the first time back in, I'm thinking 2010, 2011. I think 2011 was when I was, was when I was maybe at the Midwest bonsai show and I judged and I just it was like the most controversial thing that I've ever engaged with in my career as a bonsai professional to date was the Midwest bonsai show and telling the the that current administration that I would not be giving out like 400 ribbons I was just like I can't I can't (laughs) I can't do that anyways so I had to finish that work and then water a little bit and but I'm really excited to be talking to you and the hatred that spilled over from my, what I considered to be one of the most optimistic, uplifting, and proactive critiques that I've ever given for a show. Somebody videotaped it, put it on YouTube. The hatred that I got for that was so sharp and pointed and aggressive that it spilled over from that YouTube video onto the small little video clip that uh, Farron had prepared for my bonsai focus photo shoot that I had done earlier in 2011 when I was in Europe. And they had to disable comments on like every video that I appeared on on YouTube because of the Chicago Midwest uh, Bonsai Society's club show where I I, 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 I drew a line in the sand and said, listen, for the advanced practitioners that put effort in, it is a disservice to give everybody else ribbons. I want to give four ribbons and call it good. And I just, I got, I got massacred. So then, and I'm giving you this background because this plays into what I wanted to talk to you about. Ivan Waters was the curator at that point in time of the Chicago Botanical Collection. And it was clearly, I mean, the venue, the, the architecture, very modern, very beautiful use of glass as a materiality in the, in the collection etc. And Ivan stepped down. I haven't been back to Chicago since 2011 because of that experience. And honestly, I haven't been invited back. And, you know, the feeling is, is, is mutual as far as an organizational concern. But people of Chicago, the bonsai practitioners, my students from Chicago, and, and in particular, when you took over the collection, you came out and you hung with Aaron and you guys came down to Mirai and we were able to talk for a little while. It was like, I need to talk to Chris and just see what your experience has been like 
at the Chicago Botanical Bonsai Collection. <laughs> well, I'm glad. Uh, thanks you for having me. It's, it's uh, going to be fun. Well, I have to say when, when I started in 2014, the there was still a reverberation of your visit <laughs> from the community it was like the the ryan neal critique whatever was like it was there it was it was kind of funny because that was like uh yeah that was kind of funny so it's still um it still was around uh in 14 so it lingered for a for a little while. I don't hear much about it nowadays. Thank goodness. Yeah, I hope not. That would be de- that would be really <laughs> devastating if you did, if it was still like that. No, yeah. it's uh, But th- that's kind of funny that you say that because, um, yeah, we would love to have you back. I'd love to see what's going on now and um, in one form or fashion. But yes, uh, yeah. So things things have changed a lot since then. Um, hopefully mostly for the, for the better. And um, so we're just kind of, yeah, just trying to do our thing there, you know, and just trying to improve the collection over time. The first few years were, you know, I was the first full-time curator. Ivan was part-time and it was before that, Ivan was there for about six or seven years. And before that, it was run by volunteers. And then the production staff of the garden was really doing the day-to-day watering and feeding and, and that sort of thing. And the volunteers were coming in and doing the maintenance. And so when I started, um, you know, there was a lot of change, you know, organizationally, um, they were investing in having a full-time person, but the infrastructure hadn't really caught up. So I was like doing the work of the collection in this tiny little corner in the middle of the head house of the whole garden and trying to maintain, you know, manage, uh, you know, volunteer staff and all of that stuff. So the, um, so a lot has changed there because now since uh, I think 18, We've got a brand new facility. Uh, the bonsai area has really been caught up to speed as far as having a bonsai studio and having uh, multiple overwintering temperatures, having outdoor grow outs that are, you know, that are done well. Um, and so, I mean, it's like night and day from when you were there to to what it is now as far as uh, as far as all that stuff, the infrastructure and stuff. But, you know, the, the first couple of years, you know, we're we're a challenge. And there was a lot of challenges, not only organizationally, but also kind of, you know, socially and politically too around, you know, here I was this outside person, I was coming in and I too was like, okay, we're going to be doing things a little different now. You know, I came from the model of the national arboretum and I was, you know, had, had been there for a while as an intern and as a volunteer And so I took a lot of what was going on there. It basically became the National Collection Midwest version as far as the structure of the volunteer program and having it be organized and only having volunteers come when I was there. And so a lot, a lot of things really changed on the front end, um, which certainly ruffled some feathers as well. And, um, you know, so there was there was the first couple of years were were really challenging. Um, I feel like now we're you know, now things have certainly uh, are the best they've ever been, which is good. So we're incremental improvements across the board. We, um, you know, we're changing the culture, changing how people thought about the bonsai collection, not only within the organization, but outside the organization. And, um, you know, things were just, just because of the fact that I was full time, you know, things were just structured differently. I was there all the time and volunteers were coming and 
working on trees independently and they would come when Ivan wasn't there. And so um, that was challenging too, because you had people working independently and you didn't always have that one common voice with where the direction, not only of an individual tree was going, but the direction of the collection as a whole. And so I could take a deciduous tree and I could look at it and see like, okay, you know, three years ago, somebody thought this was the design and this was the structure. And then you could see the cuts from the next year. And it was like, okay, that person thought this was a better design. And then at the end of three years, the tree is further off than it was three years before that, because there wasn't, you know, and I would always say to them, listen, you might not agree with me, but we're going to have a direction. We're going to do things a certain way. And I think you'll start to see the reward of that. And just having that person that was there every day and that person that was sitting and doing the work with them and, you know, working side by side with the volunteers versus them working independently. So, um, so a lot of that changed, you know, like I said, the first few years were, were really pretty, pretty intense, you know, and, um, and I was, you know, I was not much more than a glorified hobbyist. Let's face it. I, you know, I did my did my studying at the the National Collection. Uh, spent six months in Japan in 2012, and you know, so I had some experience, maybe more than the average person, but I did not have experience managing a 250 or 300 tree collection for public display. You know, so we repotted every single tree in the first two years I was there because everything was planted in turfus. And so um, I started in April. So that year we didn't repot much, maybe a couple of trees that I felt like the health was in question. And then the next two years, um, we repot, I repotted literally every single tree in the collection into a pumice, lava rock and Akadama, which was just a mix that I was understood. And I was familiar with how it functioned, how it took water, how it took nutrients. And so um so that was pretty aggressive to do that and change every single tree, but the trees really responded really well to it. And I think after the first year, if they didn't, you know, I might've re regrouped or might've rethought my process. But after the, after redoing a bunch of trees, the first, that, that second spring, but that first real repotting season for me, um, I was like, okay, that really rejuvenated me to see how the trees were responding. And so then that next year we got through the rest. It took maybe a year or two more to do the tropicals because I needed them, you know, I needed them on display. And so um, when I first started, we had probably about 54 or so trees that I would have considered the first year. I think we displayed 54 trees. And now we probably have 120 display quality trees. And I would consider the level at which we consider display quality to be higher, hopefully. So that progression of um, changing the collection started off slow because, you know, so I repot all those trees in the first two years. I'm not going to go crazy redesigning and restyling, giving everything a year or two to recover from all of that. A fair amount of trees I felt like, you know, had some health questions. And so, all of a sudden you consider the repotting and the couple of years for recovery. And all of a sudden you're four years in, you know, we also had a complete change of facility. So all the trees got moved for the construction. So we had to move all the containers and move all the trees. So my first, I think it was my first three years, the trees were in like two different spots. We had moved them twice. We had moved like, we had like 600 pots. So we had to move all the pots, then move all the pots back. 
Um, we were displaced. I was working on trees in the corridor, in offices, in conference <laughs> rooms, um, outside when we could. Like it was not an easy go. It was not an easy wow. go. It was. It was. Um, it was. It was a test of my resiliency for sure. Just you know, just for factors, you know, that there was just some. Most of them were were out of my control, you know. And certainly once we got on the other side with the new facility and having uh, the volunteer program come up to speed and having everybody bought in and people starting to see the difference and see that, you know, we, we were making good improvements, um, you know, then things certainly got easier. Um, but, uh, but, you know, that, that first, I look back at that first stretch, I say, man, like I have, I have no idea. I, was, I, I don't know how I even got through all that, but it was, you know, to repot like a hundred plus trees in a given season, you know, at that juncture was, was pretty crazy. And just, and I was doing, I was doing it all myself because I wanted to see every root system and I was taking photographs of them. And I was like going through and the ones that were the sickest, cause you know, I was like, all right, I'm going to take pictures of all these things and like document if all these things like crash, you yeah. know, I'm just trying to keep my job, you know, I've got here. I finally got to like my dream job. It's what I've been shooting for for these years and sacrificing and um you know so on one hand i was like totally terrified but on the other hand i i i had a plan you know i i felt like i had a good foundation the time i spent with d in dc really set me up for success um and the you know the time i spent in japan was was useful wasn't wasn't very long of course but um i picked up a lot of things there even outside of tree work, you know, just things, the uh, mental stuff, emotional stuff, like how to handle stress and how to handle crazy situations. So, so yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was pretty crazy. Wow. Well, now, did you study with Kobayashi when you were in Japan for six months? No, or? it was, uh, Toro Suzuki. Oh, okay. You were at Daijun. Daijun, yes. And, um, so Jack Sestick, of course, from the national collection, he, that's where I really started. And so I was volunteering there, um, and through, I started there in about 2011. Um, and then, um, through Jack, you know, I was just like, you know, looking for opportunities. My whole goal was just to find opportunities and take them where I could. And so I started with the volunteering, um, met Jack at an open house, um, for the Baltimore Bonsai Club. And I saw him, we were working in the Yoshimura Center um, and just had the doors open and visitors could come. And we were just like working on trees and talking about bonsai. And I never met him before. And I saw him come in and he was kind of cutting through the Yoshimura Center. And I could tell he was like trying not to engage with anyone. You know, he was heading to his office. And, and I literally chased him down the hallway and I introduced myself and I said, my name is Chris Baker. I have aspirations of being a curator someday and I'd like to volunteer here. And it was like literally that sentence changed the trajectory of my life, at, you know, down the road. And so that would have been the fall, like October, uh, I think by February, I started volunteering there. He had this thing where he would tell people we're full, but check back with me. And that was like a test to see if people would check back. So he said, check back with me after the turn of the year. So January came and I reached out and we got it going. So that was February. And like by the next year, I was in Japan. So he had a mutual friend. He had some friends in Hawaii that were friends with Mr. Suzuki. And so he got to go to Daijuan for like two weeks and started, got a relationship with them. So 
I had never really planned to go to Japan. That wasn't, I was married at the time. I had a job at the National Aquarium in Baltimore and I was, you know, just working and living and trying to, to just get experience doing bonsai. So, so we were just talking about opportunities and he said, well, if you're really serious, you know, I could reach out to these people I know in Japan and see. So he reached out to them. They had an apprentice at the time. And the plan was that that person was going to be there for a while. So it was kind of like, that was like, okay, that was my kind of my one opportunity, my one. And so a few months later, three months later to be exact. So I started following the guy that was there. He had like, back then it was uh, like WordPress pages were the, <laughs> right. were like the thing that people use. I have one that's like dead in space somewhere, you know, but so, um, so I was following along and he's talking about he's going to be there for five years and all this other stuff. And like three months later, Jack just hands me an email that's from the Suzuki's that says, our guy's done. Does your guy want to come? And I was like, oh, my God. So so we just like worked on that came, you know, sometime through that year. And then by January of that next year, 2012, I was there. So I uh, spent three months came home for a period of time and then went back later that year um, for three more months. My wife was a teacher, so she was trying to actually get teaching English jobs in Japan. So I was, the idea was to stay longer, but we couldn't, she just, we couldn't get something that worked out where she would even be remotely close enough to make it work. And then we would just both be in the same country, but not able to really see each other. And it didn't make much sense. So, um, but we like, you know, gave up our place put all our stuff in a storage unit, moved in with my in-laws. So my wife lived with them while I was gone. I came home for the summer, worked at a nursery and volunteered in DC again, went back for the fall and into, uh, and then returned like that next November. So within that year, I was gone for six months. And, and then I came back that following year, I became the intern at the National Collection. So I was the second uh, apprenticeship program person that they had there. And then, then after that, I was working at a nursery. I was a veterinary technician in my prior career. So I was like working part-time as a vet tech and working the internship because I had to afford to do it. The internship paid like $11 an hour at the time. So, you know, we were still living with my in-laws because we couldn't afford to move out at that point. And so, um, so my wife and my in-laws and my family were so supportive and I was 40 years old, you know, like this midlife crisis, go to Japan and like, you know, crawl on your hands and knees and pick weeds with tweezers <laughs> in the morning, you know, like, so some people get a girlfriend or a sports car and I just like, okay, I'm going to see to go to Japan for six months and just like try to fulfill this lifelong dream, you know? So I shouldn't say lifelong. It was, it was only a dream for a short period of time, I guess. So you made quick work. So yeah, that was all pretty crazy. And I just was, you know, I had called around and was just looking for opportunities. And that was just the thing that had happened. So, you know, it's funny, because I had actually reached out to a bunch of people about stuff. And when I knew that I was going, I had actually reached out to you, you were just back recently from your time there. And, um, and uh, you gave me three bits of advice. I just said, I, I know you can't sum up five years of uh, apprenticeship, but what, what were, you know, what could you tell me? And you were kind enough to write back. And um, I remember I, uh, there was three things. One was learn the language, but at that point I didn't think I was even going. So I was not learning Japanese. So that was over. Uh, the other one was the two other two were very uh, helpful because one was you're not there to teach them what you know. 
you're there to learn what they know. And although I wouldn't have gone there and been like, hey, look how good I am. I think there would have been a part of me that would have been like, here's where I am so that you know. But of course, they could care less where they I was because yeah. to them, I knew I, I knew <laughs> I knew it was that one thing I did right. Right. So it's like it didn't matter what I knew. And I learned that pretty quickly. So luckily, I didn't go there and be like, hey, look what I know. Uh, and the other bit of advice was uh, remove all obstacles to growing. And I kind of changed that to learning in my mind because I was very open to growing and I was open to the process of that time. And when things were like the worst and when it was like late at night or we were, it was the weather was inclement or just like things were not going well, I would just say, remove, like find a way to learn something from this, like take something away from this. Otherwise you're just miserable you know so um so that was all very helpful so thank you i've never got a chance to thank you for that advice that was probably in like 2011 or something 10 probably right after you came to chicago and ran wild oh my god just having an identity crisis and trying to figure out bonsai for my on my own you know like that's really funny that's hilarious god Wow. So, I mean, that happened fast. Like that happened in quick succession. Like if most people heard, you know, I don't know, when did you start doing bonsai? When did you become interested in bonsai? Probably I started doing it a little more seriously. 2004, I was living in Florida. So I was living in Colorado for a while. I I grew up in New York, Long Island, New York. Okay. And then I went to school for four years, uh, played baseball in college, wasn't really dedicated to my studies. But after that, I took a short break and, and got a job actually at a veterinary clinic and and had an idea of going to veterinary school. So I wound up getting accepted to Colorado State, which had a real good vet program. And the first vet I ever worked for um, was a graduate from there. So he's like, you should go there. It's beautiful. I went out and visited a friend who was living in Denver and I came home and I just was like, oh, I, I'm going to move to Colorado. So two years later, I was there going to CSU, uh, went back to school, community college, got my grades up and got accepted to CSU, like in animal science or something. But with the idea of going to vet school. Um, and then once I got out there, I was working at a vet clinic and going to school and just like just was overwhelmed by the mountains and spending time hiking and, and, and was, uh, over the, over the course of a couple of years became less and less interested in going to school and more and more interested (laughs) in just going hiking with my dog and just being outdoors all the time. So I eventually stopped going to school and just worked as a vet tech and lived there for a year, for seven years total. Um, and then I wound up moving to Florida. So I was there, there was a nursery by my house. I remember that had bonsai. And I remember I bought a little ficus once and I got into it, but I never, I wasn't like, I didn't have the lifestyle to really dedicate to doing it. And now with having some understanding of what that takes. Um, and, and I worked on Saturdays. So there was like, they did some classes at this nursery, but I always were, it would, they were on Saturdays. So long story short, as I moved to Florida, eventually we started working at the university of Florida and joined the Gainesville Bonsai Club, which was a really thriving club at the time. And that was where like, all of a sudden it became real. There was resources, there was people doing bonsai, I had access to trees. And uh, the the convention, I think it was 06 was Bonsai Bridges was in that the Gainesville hosted the, the state convention. 
And that was just eye opening. I mean, all of these Southern, like Jim Smith, Jim Van Landingham, Colin Lewis, Kathy Shaner, uh, Rodney Clemens, like it was, it was crazy. And I didn't know anything or anyone, but I was part of the club. So I helped out. I got to help with the demos and help some of the people. And it was completely eye opening and really changed a lot for me. And I was like, wow, this was, this was really cool because I hadn't seen real bones out, you know what I mean? Like I, I, it was the first real exposure to like, holy cow, you know, Gary Marshall was there building this Cypress forest and, you know, Jim Smith has got all of these solicifolia and it was just like, it was really eye opening. So that was big. And then I was there for maybe three, three plus years. And I moved up to Baltimore, got a job at the national aquarium in Baltimore, um, as a veterinary technician. And before I even moved there, I made sure they had a bonsai club and I joined the Baltimore bonsai club. And then that's when I kind of moved up there and continued on, you know, again, started, started working out at uh, a nursery in Western Maryland called Meehan's Miniatures. So at one point I was, my days off were Sunday, Monday, and I drive out to Meehan's two days a month. And I was volunteering at the National Arboretum four days a month. And so I was basically working six days and seven days a week for an extended period of time. And I wound up spending more money and I lived probably an hour and 20 minutes from each of those places. So on my day off, I'd spend two plus hours in the car at me hands. It would cost me more in gas and food than I would make, you know? And then if I wanted a tree, I'd wind up owing owing them money, you know? So, but the, you know, I, I just wanted repetition. I wanted experience. And at me, as I was getting it in younger developmental stuff and at the Arboretum, I was getting it in obviously more refined material because I felt like my first few years, you know, I had the same kind of material. So I was doing the same skill set. I wasn't doing any refinement techniques and I wasn't doing things that were being done on more, you know, refined trees. So I wasn't, I felt like I just repeated my first year for three years in a row, get something from a nursery, hack it back and then sit and wait, you know? So getting experience at different places with material that was at different stages was, I thought was important for me to, to advance my understanding of the, all the different stages. And so, so we were, yeah, we were doing that. And then I, I switched from being a vet tech at the aquarium and actually got a job in at the, as a horticulturist for the rainforest exhibit, which was amazing. And certainly on paper, I had no business getting it, but I knew the curator. He knew I had, you know, he knew I knew plants. All we did was talk plants. He was an awesome guy, Ken Howell. And so I, I credit Ken with getting me into horticulture. And once that happened, it was like, okay, boom, like this huge rainforest exhibit was just a giant classroom for me. And I was working with soils and pest management and growing all kinds of different species. And so that was really exciting. And that was something that kind of led me. And then, you know, I was started volunteering at the national collection and it just all kind of kept going, you know, and it was just like, it was just one of those things. The more I learned, the more I wanted to learn. And then, you know, I opened one door and then there was three more and I was just like, okay, like I just, it just appealed to me on so many levels, um, artistically, horticulturally, the technical and mechanical aspects of it. Like it just, it just, it just fit. It just was like, and I remember seeing an interview with Mike Hagedorn many, many years ago where he said at some point, he just said, it's silly for me to pursue anything else at this point. And I thought, well, I, I kind of feel that way now. Like it's like, it's such this weird thing. And 
the opportunity to get a job as a curator was just nearly impossible, right? I mean, there's been the, the turnover of those jobs, I mean, it is obviously very minimal. And so to have everything in, in 2013, when the job interview process started, to have like all of those things kind of peaking, right? I had just gotten back from Japan in 2012. I was, you know, volunteering and interning at the National Collection. I was working at a nursery doing some bonsai stuff. And like, here comes now this job comes available, a full-time job. And so, you know, after that, of course, Aaron got the job at PBM uh, not long after that, but it was like, after that, there's been nothing. So I just look back and think, man, how lucky was I to get this job and be here for nine years now, nine plus years. And what, what I would have been doing if, uh, you know, I certainly wouldn't have got the job <laughs> at Pacific Bonsai Museum, you know, like over Aaron, you know, maybe I could have, maybe something after Aaron left, I guess maybe I could have tried to get the job in DC as assistant curator, but it was, you know, there, you know, there was just nothing else after that. So I just like thank my lucky stars every day that I kind of got that, got lucky and, uh, and got the job here, you know, because I, I don't know what else I would have been doing. Whoa. That was so intense. The journey you just took me on. That was amazing. <laughs> that was, that was, yeah. And, and when you had that opportunity to take the job in Chicago, what was happening at the Chicago Botanical Garden that increased their dedication or resources towards the bonsai collection to now have a full-time curator to be improving these facilities and to be investing in this collection? Because that's not normal. Usually it goes the other way. Usually like Everybody, every institution is like, it's a great idea to have a bonsai collection and they have it for five years and they're like, oh my gosh, what did we do? This is way more involved than we thought. But Chicago had one, had a part-time curator, and then they're like, let's up our game. What, 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 what transpired there? I I don't really know. You know, the, the facility change was about 15 years in the making. So that was like, that wasn't a short-term thing. That was something that had been going on for a long time. And I just happened to come in, you know, four years before, you know, it was actually maybe a a year and a half before groundbreaking. But I don't know, it wasn't like, you know, you look at some of the other collections, like, you know, Mathai got an assistant curator because they got the Mel Goldstein collection and Longwood got a new assistant curator because they're getting, you know, the trees from, uh, from Doug Paul. And so I, I didn't, there wasn't this thing that facilitated it really. There wasn't like, you know, they, we had gotten a bunch of Nakamura trees, but that was in 2000. Um, and so there wasn't like a huge gift of trees and there wasn't a huge change in the collection at the time. So I don't know the, the director at the time, Chris Karantowski was very interested in the bonsai. And so I think it, he was the driving force. He he really was someone who wanted to see the bones. He was into very traditional neoclassical like bonsai, um, but he they, he really liked them. And so he was a bit hands on with that. So um, so I don't know that there was one thing that made them say, "Hey, we're just going to make this transition." I don't know that uh, you know. And I just think that Ivan didn't want to be full time. And so maybe uh-huh. they had offered it to him. Maybe he didn't want to. When I, <laughs> there was a point of contention there because when I started, somehow I, at one point I referenced him like retiring, and he's like, "I I'm, I didn't retire," and it, it was pretty obvious that there was um, his departure was not like it, it, it between him and the garden. There was some tension, 
And so I kind of got pulled into that, you know, and also from the community, like it was, I think a lot of the stuff that was between some of the people and the garden then became me and those people. Right. Because now I'm the, I'm the new guy and I'm the face of the collection. And so, um, so I, I got caught up in some of that stuff, which made the first couple of years a lot more challenging, but, but I don't know. Yeah. I I don't really know what they, you know, why they all of a sudden just said, Hey, we're going to, you know, it was progressing, you know, I mean, they went from volunteer to part-time. I think Ivan was there for about five or or for about six years, maybe. So Mm -hmm. he was part-time for about six years and then they just were ready to make the investment. And I think he maybe just didn't want to be full-time at that point. He was looking to transition. Right. Right. Yeah. And we're in, in, and so now you're this like full-time curator in a collection that's never had a full-time curator and there's this massive facility exchange. You've got all of this, I mean, Chicago is a pressure cooker on a political spectrum already, just as a general lifestyle of Chicago and like the broader political spectrum, right? It's like intent that it's a very intense place from that aspect and, and mentality. And now all of a sudden you're like in there and you're like, I'm, I'm psyched on bonsai. Jack Sustick's got the national collection locked down and you've been working with him and, and, <laughs> and now, and now you're injected into this situation where they're like, Hey, Chris, we just need you to shift these 600 pots. And there's a conference room. You can be working on the trees over there. And like, we're going to be building this. And like, you, you, you got this kind of figured out. Right. And you're like, yeah, no, yeah. we're, we're good. I yeah. mean, at some point were you like, what did I do? What did I do? No, what did I, I get myself into? Or were you just like, no. cause this is also, it's interesting listening to you talk about this not to cut you off. It's interesting listening to you talk about this because hearing your journey, it's like, oh, well, you are the perfect person to be the curator in Chicago. You're the guy. Like where you've come from, what you've been doing, the pace at with which you just walked me through your boneside journey. It's like, oh, okay. You, you were already ready for that. I, w- I was a little battle tested from some of my travels, you know, but I, I, not for any, it, not for nothing like I was going to experience, you know, I mean, again, you know, my time in Japan was short and, and as much as um, the lifestyle, as you know, as well as anyone else is tough, but it wasn't, I didn't experience a lot of the things that a lot of other people experience as far as like the stress and the, and the, and the pressures and the uh, unhealthy environment. Like they were welcoming, like the lifestyle was hard, but it was never with malice. And my senpais were, were, were hard and firm, but they were not unkind. And so like, you know, so I know it's hard, you know, just with my age and the, and that sort of stuff made things I think a little more challenging than if I was like in my twenties, you know, but it also gave me a lot of different insight that allowed me to be so much more accepting. Um, I think I learned so much more, like a lot of the stuff I learned in Japan was like, you know, mental control and like, you know, I'd be sitting and working on a tree and Mr. Suzuki would just, so when I started, the other thing in Japan is, let me digress for a second, is um, my senpai who spoke a, a bit of English, certainly far more than Japanese that I spoke, and he was my lifeline. And he, and I was there for two weeks and he had some health concerns and left and never came back. So I had oh, this wow. lifeline in uh, U- Uch Senpai 
and he was gone one day. And then, and so Mr. Suzuki's wife spoke a little bit. I had my Google translator. So if we were by Wi-Fi, we could, but it was like very primitive communication. So I went from having, and one of the reasons I felt so good about going there was because he was there and because I could have that communication. And then when he left, I was literally the only apprentice there. So I was doing everything and I was just with him. So it was like, all of a sudden, now you are the apprentice at Daijuan. You know, no, you don't know the language. You don't know the culture. You're just real. You're just stepping all over yourself with everything you do and everything you do with the trees, of course, is not correct. And so then I was like, I was the guy I was doing all the watering. I was driving him all over the place, you know, and I was big and strong. So he would, I was carrying everything and I was, I was everything. And I felt like I did okay, you know, and I felt like he was, he, I gained a lot of respect by losing my senpai, although he, I would have gained, I would have learned a lot more, of course. Um, so that was kind of trying. And the second, the second time I went back was, um, you know, but, but um, Junko Tanaka was at IGN at the time and Peter T was there and Juan was there. And so when we really needed to communicate, we could get together with them. And then there was people who had more of an English uh, could speak English. And then we could get like, you know, if they had questions or they needed to really explain stuff to me, they were always around. Like we were, we were mm. always with the IGN group inter, you know, intermittently together. So that was kind of helpful, but losing him, that was really kind of challenging. But the, the one thing getting back to the other thing is the one thing that one of the things I learned was the mental toughness of like, you know, I'd be in the studio working on a tree, you know, by myself and he would walk in and just say, we go. And then I would, we would leave. And then I wouldn't know where we were going, how long we were going for, what we were doing, what I might need when we were there. So I won't, so I learned, I just filled a backpack with like survival gear. And he would say, we go. And I'd grab my camera and my backpack and I'd jump in the truck. And then I was kind of prepared for anything, including like a change of clothes and like, cause you never knew might be spraying chemicals or whatever. Right. So, so that was, and then, you know, you come back and you just said, we're expected to sit back down and just like right. pick up exactly where you left off. Right. There's no right. leeway. You're not like sitting around, Hey, that was a fun trip. Like you're, you're just expected to clean the van, do whatever, get everything unloaded and sit back down and take that up. And, um, that was a great mental challenge because it happens every day. I get called on the radio or I have a meeting or I've got to return an email and I need to come back out to the studio and I need to sit back down and I need to focus on what I was doing, you know, and, and have that, that mental toughness to do that. Um, so that was like, I learned a lot of stuff like that. Certainly I got repetition. I mean, I plucked pine needles mostly for, for, you know, 13 hours a day or whatever it was and by myself in the studio, you know, and then if someone else came over or the senpais came over, then it was like, I was sitting in a cloud of smoke cause they're all smoking. Right. And then they're like playing Japanese music and talking. And I just was, I was just like, um, I watched the movie. I'm trying, what's that movie with, uh, uh, I am legend with Will Smith when he was like the only guy in New York city. Like I was like, I just felt like here I was on this Island of people who, you know, I just was this, sitting there in silence, mostly, you know, with my thoughts, you find a lot of weird places in your head when you're sitting in a studio for yourself by yourself with people who don't speak your language for 16, 18 hours a day, you know? So, um, all of that really was really kind of, I think set me up to deal with a lot of the other stresses that I then eventually came to when I got this job. 
I've always been very competitive and very tough. I mean, playing sports my whole life. And, and so like, to me, it was like, okay, it's going to be hard. Well, that, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, let's do it. You know, like yeah. I, I can be sure. hard, you know, I, this is I what can I be want. hard. This is what I want and I'm willing to do what it takes, you know, and the first few months I was here, my wife was still in Maryland cause she was teaching. And so she waited to come till like June or so when her school year ended. So I really had that April to June where I just was by myself. We, you know, we had rented a, a small house and I was here and all I had to do was think about work. You know, I had my dog with me, so my dog and work. And, and, um, so that was good. Like I didn't have any other distractions, you know, it was kind of like apprentice life. Like this is your focus. This is what you do. And I remember saying to my boss during the uh, interview process, which was like a long, which started my first pre-interview was like before Thanksgiving. And then I got hired and I started in April. So it was a pretty long process. Oh, wow. I went to, came to Chicago twice for inter, once was an interview. And then once was like a working interview with a, with a group of volunteers because they were allowing the volunteers to have some feedback. And then I also did a phone interview on the front end. So it was like a three interview process, two trips here. My first trip here was during the pol- the first one, their first polar vortex years. I'd never even been to Chicago, certainly never <laughs> been to Illinois, never saw the collection, <laughs> didn't know where it was. So here it is literally it's Super Bowl weekend and it had to be, it would, it would have been like, uh, you know, that, that early 14th. We're staying in a hotel. Snow is coming down. It's literally like minus 20 degrees. Next day I'm there for an interview. I got a suit on and dress shoes. And I'm like walking through the snow and I'm thinking to myself, what? At that point I was thinking like, what is going on here? It is right. so cold. This is unbelievable. And it didn't matter what it was. It didn't matter what the conditions were. It didn't matter what the collection was. It was like, if, if they were offering me the job, I was taking it. There was just, mm-hmm. there was, there was no other way, you know, mm-hmm. there was no other options. So that's where my mindset was. It was like, just get it. Who cares what happens afterwards? You can build it. You can do whatever. And um, the first time I saw the trees, they were in their overwintering space. So I, you know, I, I got some, got some feel of the collection, but not really. The trees were packed in this tiny little Quonset and the tropical trees were mixed in with like production stuff. And, and so it was kind of like, you know, it was like, I didn't really have a great assessment of what the trees were. But again, that, that didn't really matter to me. So I was just like, just get it. That's all that really mattered was just get it. And, uh, why did you want so to be a curator like, so bad? Why did you, why, why was that? Why were you like, I, I'm going to become a bonsai curator? Cause this has become, I'm recognizing this has become like a theme and it's like a secret society you know, talking with Aaron, he's like went to school for museum curatorship in D.C. And, right. then, and then, you know, had some ties via Southern California to Bonsai and then started working at the Arboretum. And Jack was like in the military and found Bonsai and sort of, you know, half stumbled, half like found yeah. that he wanted to become that. But you're like, I wanted to be a Bonsai curator. I walked up to Jack Sustick and said, this is what I'm going to do. Why? Why a Bonsai curator? That's a good question. I, I don't know. I, I, I wanted to do something in bonsai. I want, uh, you know, once I got into horticulture, I knew, okay, I want to do horticulture. This is really, I, you know, like I said, I was a vet tech for almost 20 years, um, mostly with like exotic animals and zoo animals. So I've worked on, you know, beluga whales and walruses and tiny little frogs and bears and monkeys and tigers and like all of that stuff. And I loved it. I lived it, you know, 
And I've always found a way to like take things I loved and then somehow make a career out of it. And so this was like the next iteration of biology for me. It was like, okay, now I'm doing plants. Plants don't think you're going to kill them. Plants don't try to kill you. Um, it seemed a little less stressful, but then, you know, doing bonsai, <laughs> of course, is, you know, it's not. Um, but I, I wanted, so I, I felt like I wanted to do something in bonsai and I didn't know, I, I felt like I wanted to me, that just appealed more to me than trying to be a bonsai professional, um, as far as like traveling around, doing classes, having that stuff. It just, it just appealed to me more on, on a few levels. Um, and I, I knew it would be hard to get, but if I could get one, then I, I just felt like, you know, I, I, as much as I like to travel, I'm also kind of a homebody and I like to have my home base and, I didn't want to be on the road for 300 days of the year. And, and, you know, I just like, it just, it just appealed to me more and it just seemed like an, an option. Um, and so that was just kind of what, what made me really choose that. And I love the idea of cultivating and growing. Like I wanted to, you know, if I'm at a place for 10 years, I wanted to see a tree develop for 10 years, you know, and I'd be a part of that tree's growth and existence you know, versus always working on someone else's tree where that person's really doing the primary caring. And I think that goes back to my vet tech stuff too. Like I liked caring for things. I like to, you know, with, with the animals, it was, you know, caring for them, giving them, you know, decreasing morbidity, mortality. And I just felt like for plants, you know, it was just like that long-term caring uh, and cultivating and taking care of something like that just appealed to me more. Um, and so that's why, um, you know, that's why the the curatorship, I think, appealed to me more. Now, as a curator at the Chicago Botanical Collection, wanting to be involved in this narrative arc of a tree from creation through the process, typically, and I'm, I'm assuming that you experienced this at the National Arboretum, I mean, that really was sort of being a caretaker of a timeless living piece of art and not really altering that tree. And then, you know, I, I know one of the conversations Aaron and I had when he went to PBM was he would have a lot more capacity to evolve the aesthetic of trees and play a part in this narrative arc that you're speaking to. So when you looked at Chicago and the notion of curatorship, did, did, was that a part of the conversation of stepping into curatorship at that collection that they were going to give you carte blanche or did they have an ethos that they presented to you of how they expected you to maintain the collection? They didn't. And I pretty much have, I can pretty much do and direct things as I want, which is a great, uh, situation to be in, you know? And so I think when I first started, I, you know, again, I was not changing a ton of stuff because I was trying to just get things healthy and get things going. And so at the beginning of it, I was more of that caretaker kind of person. I was developing the stuff that was not near, it was not display quality. And then now I've gotten to go back and, you know, I, I, I certainly don't change things for the sake of changing them. But if, if there are things that I feel like could be uh, when I, when I, one time Aaron came to me and one of the, the phrases that he used was advancing the design. So it wasn't like, wasn't change, I'm not changing anything. I'm advancing the design. So, so I thought about it in that way. And we've made some, you know, we've made some pretty big changes on some trees that I think, you know, had good provenance and did things, but I think for the better, you know? Um, and so I, I really like that. And it's allowed us to 
you know, I still feel like we're looking for an identity. You know, I feel like so many collections have a true identity when you think of like the collection in North Carolina with the Southern Appalachian influence and Arthur Durer's doing there. And then Aaron, what he's doing with the Pacific Northwest trees and just like, you know, uh, Denver has, you know, native collected stuff. And so I feel like a lot of collections, you know, Longwood has that influence from Doug Paul and now Mathai. And, you know, there's a lot of other collections that I'm leaving out, of course, but I feel like a lot of collections have, an identity. And, and I don't, I'm still finding my identity and I'm, you know, but we're, we're, we're trying to do things more with, you know, native species utilizing American potters and, and trying to have a more contemporary breaking away from this very traditional feel that the collection had. And they never prevented me from doing, from doing that. You know, we would, I would do a white paper every year and we would do stuff and, and, you know, I would be like, here, you know, here's the direction. Here's what I'd like to see. Here's what I think we should do. Um, trying to tie more into native species. Um, we don't have a ton of great tree species here, can, you know, compared to other regions, you know, but being able to, to even North American, even if we're not focusing more on uh, Midwestern, but, you know, North America as a whole and, and doing more stuff like that. So they really allowed me to do, you know, we've created things that are more penging and you know so as a public collection you know most of the people that come there of course except for the bonsai weekends are not they're not bonsai people right they're they're the general public and they come so we have an opportunity to show people different kinds of this art form different different forms of this art form and 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 things that are more traditional, uh, things that are maybe representative of Penjing, things that are more contemporary, things that are native species, you know, native accent plants, prairie plants, and trying to tie all that stuff in and coming up with themes and coming up with like this sense of, of what we're going to be. And, and, and I feel like that's still yet to be fully flushed out. And so that's really exciting because I, you know, it's, it's, I've changed so much, you know, nine years, the way I thought about everything nine years ago related to bonsai, you know, in the aesthetic category, at least has really changed and um, having great influences from so many, from so many people here. And, um, and so that's been really fun, a really fun journey. Now I also kind of feel like, you know, damn, for those, for those first few years, all those years, like, you know, it was like I was doing something a little bit different. And now and so, but um, I'm really, I'm really excited about the future. I'm, uh, a few years ago, I'm, uh, the bonsai collection was a, under the, the blanket of horticulture. And a few years ago, that changed and we moved under plant collections. And when that happened, a bunch more resources opened up to me as far as funding for doing different things. When I first started, my budget was very minimal and it was less than I spend now on soil per year. I mean, they were just buying bags of turfus, you know, which were cheap. And then all of a sudden I want to buy a pallet of Akadama and lava rock and pumice, you know, and that's a few thousand dollars. And they're like, well, what the, you know, we've never done that before. There were so many firsts, you know, and I remember when Aaron came one time we were working and I was just telling him about a few things. And uh, he just, at one point he stopped and he goes, well, they don't, they don't, they don't know how to handle you. They don't know how to deal with having that, having someone, you know, that vision or that like the manner of those doing those things. And so 
um, when I made the when I made the transition to the plant collections, that really opened up stuff. So now I have money to buy containers. We've gotten several Jan Kulik's and we've gotten um, and I'm just exploring new containers. I got a bunch of uh, got pots at the national show um, and I went to Asheville in June and, and um, for that bonsai as fine art show and, and met a bunch of new potters there and got some pots there. So that's been a real big focus of me monetarily is focusing on getting American pots and finding American potters to pair with our trees and trying to tell more stories, you know, trying to pair. Uh, I got a, a cypress tree donated from someone in South Carolina. So I got a container made from uh, this guy from Roy in South Carolina and this beautiful glaze on it. So I'm like, we're trying to build stories, trying to build provenance, trying to tell more of the story than the tree itself. And I think that's a part of it. Uh, some of the other things I really like to to do more is connecting trees to our trees in the garden and connecting bonsai to our trees, like in the Cook County Forest Preserve. So the garden it resides on Cook County Forest Preserve land and the garden leases it, if you will. But it's we have this really good relationship with the Cook County Forest Preserve. So trying to highlight native species and doing trees and making the connection to trees maybe making the connection to some conservation efforts and using you know with my zoo and aquarium background you know where it was always about you know these animals in captivity are ambassadors for their wild counterparts and how can we teach the public about those animals from their captive counterparts and so there's no reason why in public collections we cannot be using bonsai trees to um, be ambassadors for trees that might be you know, in jeopardy in nature through different pests and disease and climate change and all that other stuff. I know obviously you guys have been doing stuff with that too. Um, and so like that idea is really something I'd like to continue to flush out as well. And like just using using them to be more than just something people look at, right? There's a message there. There's a, a, per, a higher purpose for doing for doing bonsai than just for people to look at them and enjoy them. How can we how can we use these bonsai for something greater than just this idea of that? And um, through the horticultural therapy department at the garden, too, I've been working with um, veteran groups and I have a, a veteran intern. We have a veteran intern program, military veteran intern program at the garden. So I work with we get veteran interns when I can. And when I do work with these veteran groups. And we do like little workshops and we do things, people with PTSD and other conditions that, you know, bonsai really lends itself to being, it's cathartic, you know, and it gives people this, um, uh, something to really focus on and to, you know, do thoughtful work and to do things that are mindful and there's a process and you're building success by the daily process of watering, feeding, pruning, and like you're building on all of that. And those are like, when I started talking to the horse therapy people, it's like, this is exactly what we're trying to teach these people. It's like the, the, you know, winning the daily battle, if you will, and getting through and doing all these things. So I started doing some work with the horticultural therapy group. And I really like that too. Um, and just like using bonsai as a vessel for other things and how, and, and how that can work. And so I've really been excited about some of those things. Um, and the conservation thing really is, is something that excites me too, about how we can kind of tie into our native uh, fauna here. And um, I'd love to do something for the, for the 
the forest preserve of native species that we could like take around, you know, and it could live at the forest preserve, you know, at the nature centers and that sort of thing. And it could be like on loan and they could have the, this like, you know, a mixed species forest or something that we're using with either all natives or using species to represent native species, you know? So um, that's the kind of stuff that really excites me now. And um, I got the chance to work with, Arthur Durer a couple of times he came here once I went there and um, the, his use of mixed forests and mixed species arrangements and really highlighting areas from his region was really excited me. And ever since I've got back from those, that was like just right before COVID. And ever since I got back from there, I've really been exploring that and trying to understand that a little bit better and how to do that um, in a way that's authentic, you know, and really represents an area so I, that, that's kind of, I, I think, where some of my ambitions are as far as like where the collection and maybe that ties into the identity. But, you know, because, again, that reaches people who are not necessarily bonsai people. A lot of people are interested in conservation. A lot of people are interested in, you know, gardening and using native species and attracting pollinators and, you know, creating native gardens. And so how can we do that and use bonsai as a tool to kind of like, yeah, hey, you can look at this tree and then go over to this garden and see the adult form. It's the same thing. You know, of course, one of the misconceptions is that they're miniaturized because of species or they're a certain kind of tree or something when it's like, yeah, you can see this tree in a somewhat mature form here. And the garden's only 50 years old, so we don't have like crazy old trees, but we have trees that are in a form that, you know, people can kind of relate to. So, um, those are some of the things that I, I'm pretty excited about trying to move forward with now. Uh, I feel like we've been building some steam over the last few years within the garden and trying to tie into garden themes and getting the bonsai. Um, you know, the bonsai was always this anomaly. And I think a lot of that had to do with kind of just the way the, the former administration wanted things like as its own thing. And it's always been my thing like, no, it's not we it's not special it's, it's like it's it just needs to be a part of the garden and when you know when one of the challenges of working at a huge institution with a million moving parts is that the bonsai can get overlooked right people like it and it's in the center of the garden but it's one small thing that the garden does in a grand scale and so i'm always like trying to this like constantly push the bonsai into other areas like yeah they we're doing this and this is our garden theme for the year okay how can we take the bonsai and fit that into your theme and create signage and create a movement and like you know graphics and so that also has been a big thing to normalize it you know like when i first started I was watering in one of the grow outs and they have the tram and the tram was going by the bonsai and the tram lady was like this is our bonsai collection, blah, blah, blah. You have to be an expert to work on these trees. You cannot do anything. And, uh, and I literally stopped the tram lady. And I'm like, no, you do not need to be an expert on this thing. Nobody is born with inherent bonsai knowledge, right? You, it's all learned. It's like anything else you've ever learned in your life. And literally stop. The tram lady stopped. It was hysterical. Everyone's looking at me like I'm a crazy person. But I was like, that's the mentality and that's the culture. Like it's this weird thing that no one can do except for certain people. It's like, no, I didn't, I didn't know how to do bonsai. I wasn't, you know, you know, maybe you were, you were born like that or Mr. Kamura was born like that, but I wasn't, you know? So, um, I don't think, so any, I don't culture, think anybody was Yeah, changing the culture and the mindset of the, the garden as a whole 
to find places where the bones I fit in and understand that the versatility of what bones I can be and do um, within the garden. And so that's been another thing, like just breaking that mold, taking it out of the Asian model, taking it out of this, this box, you know, this Mr. Miyagi, Shimpaku Juniper, this is bonsai, you know? And um, so that's been a nine year process, you know, and we've had good, you know, through that time, there's been turnover and stuff at the garden. So I think a lot of people are, are more far more engaged than they've ever been and getting excited about doing stuff with the bonsai. And I'm also much more willing to do things and, and extend myself and, um, and, uh, take them out of that box. You know, I just feel like bonsai would benefit greatly from getting out of that kind of mold and that model that people think making it accessible to everyone. Wow. Wow. I need to just process everything that you've just said so much, you know, you never know, like, I don't know you, Chris, you've, you've been to Mirai and, you know, spent very little time and, and we emailed back in 2011 and, you know, <laughs> I gave you, I gave you some advice that I probably was ill-equipped to be giving you at the time. Cause I didn't know what the hell was going on. You know, I was it like, stuck. I was like stuck. I was like stuck in the, in the matrix between Japan and the United States. Like I had, I had fully conformed to like my apprenticeship and Mr. Kimura, which isn't even like modern Japan. It's like feudalistic Japan. And I was stuck in this like samurai daimyo shogun era of, you know, <laughs> discipline and rigor. And like, I lost all sensation and emotion and feeling in my life. And, you know, then I came back to the United States and people are like, wow, you're really hardcore. And then you're like, Hey, what do I need to know to go to Japan? And I'm probably, you know, I'm literally thinking like, uh, f from like, yeah, anyways, and, you know, and it's evolved for me so much over the past 13 years of coming back from Japan. It evolved, obviously, in Japan. It's evolved exponentially more coming back from Japan. But I, I, I do have to say this is the and, and this is not to in any way sort of um, reduce any conversation I've had with anybody to this point. But I'm just like really taken back by what you've been saying about what you're trying to do with your curatorship and, and and feeling really inspired to to continue this conversation now here's the problem is uh is is i had something come up that i have to step away from uh and i actually need to be leaving very very soon and it's such a shame because we're just starting this conversation so i have a proposal for you right. i would like i would like for this to be a conversation to introduce Chris Baker as bonsai practitioner and forward-thinking uh, curator extraordinaire. But w I want to sit and marinate on what you've said. I'm going to listen to this podcast, and I would love to circle back to part two because for everything that you've just told me, there are so many questions and conversations that you and I need to have. And there is every reason that we should be having these uh, on a podcast where it's recorded, because I do think what you're thinking about doing and what you are doing, attempting to doing, aspiring to be doing with bonsai, uh, is the only way in my mind, we, sh we clearly share the ambition, but I also feel a responsibility with bonsai that it does go beyond vanity. It has to go beyond vanity in order for bonsai to be a justifiable pursuit. Otherwise, it, do it does not make sense. If you're not in it for money, which Anybody who's in it for money washes out very quickly. You're going to lose your ass. 
and it goes beyond vanity, then it becomes all of these other things that I that I had no idea you were invested in or pursuing. And so I'm so sorry to step away right now. I do appreciate the hour that you've given me, but I just feel like this is the introduction to a much bigger conversation. I need to know that you're in. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And I feel like that, you know, public collections and professionals, you know, need to work together and to and to find common I have so ground many things. Yeah, we, I got are, so yeah, many that, things to talk to you about uh, after what you've just proposed. Well, we can set and it I, up. I've, I'm totally I'm totally down with that and we could set it up and we'll we'll work it out um and uh and make a follow-up happen and uh yeah, I'm, uh, I'm in. I'm all in. Thanks so much for your time and uh, good luck with everything. Love it, Chris. We'll talk again soon, man. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye. Have a good day. Bye.